Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Oleggi, and it is my pleasure to welcome my guest co-host today, Professor Kiki Edozi, who is Associate Professor of International Relations here at Michigan State, and also the Director of the African and African American Studies Program. Thank you, Peter, and it's great to be back joining you. Um, and I'd love to uh, welcome, um, it's my pleasure really, to welcome um, our special guest today, Professor Ali Marie Tripp. Uh, she is the president-elect of the African Studies Association here in the USA. And uh, she's also a professor of political science at, uh, and gender and women's studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she directs the Center for Research on Gender and Women. Professor Tripp has published extensively, most importantly and recently, Museveni's uh, Uganda, Paradoxes of Power, which was published in two, um, 2010. Uh, recently, she also co-authored with Isabel Casimiro, Joy Kwasiga, and Alice Mongwa, um, a title called African Women's Movements uh, Transforming Political Landscapes. And this was published in 2009. She's also published uh, quite a few others, Women in Politics in Uganda, 2000, Changing the Rules, the Politics of Liberation and uh, the Urban Informal Economy in uh, Tanzania, 1997. Um, she's edited and co-edited several other volumes and um, has several chapters on the topics of uh, politics in Africa, global feminism, civil society in Africa, women in post-conflict African countries, and on democratization in Africa. Yesterday, um, she gave a wonderful, um, enlightening, um, I think just fabulous uh, talk. Um, uh, we at Michigan State University call this our 2011 annual MSU ASA presidential lecture. Um, the title of that lecture was Women, Peacemaking, and Power. And uh, this um, topic hinges on her current book project, Women, Power, and Peacemaking, peacemaking in Africa. Um, so welcome, Professor Tripp, and thank you so much for doing this and joining us today. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Now, 2011 has been an important year for African women in politics. The 2004 Nobel Peace Laureate Wangari Mathai passed away, and then the 2011 Nobel Peace Prize was awarded jointly to Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, Lema Bowie, both from Liberia, and Tawakul Karman from Yemen. Uh, for, and I quote from the Nobel uh, Committee's uh, statement, their nonviolent struggle for the safety of women and for women's rights to full participation in peace-building work. What's the meaning of this for African women and for African politics? Well, it has a lot of meaning for, for African women, but also for women, I think, all over the world, for um, people all over the world. Uh, I think it's really a recognition of the role that women played uh, in the peace movement in Liberia. Uh, and uh, both at, at many different levels, both of the grassroots, um, uh, Lema Bowie was very much involved in um, the grassroots efforts of women in various women's organizations to push for peace um, from, for many, many years. And um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was involved in the negotiations themselves. Uh, women fought very hard to get a seat at the table, and they got a few seats, and she was one of them. Um, but they also put pressure um, from the outside of the conference, the Accra Peace Talks, uh, and were um, agitating to get the, the conflict resolved in a speedy manner. Um, they felt that the negotiators were taking too long. 
And in fact, I think people today recognize that if it hadn't been for the women's efforts, both um, in the peace talks, um, sitting outside the peace talks, um, in the halls, in, at the Accra negotiations, and then also within Liberia, um, women would go every day uh, to Spriggs Airfield and uh, pray, cry, sing, uh, plead. Um, they made demonstrations to the executive mansion to meet with the president to try to get uh, the, 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 the war ended. And if it hadn't been for those efforts, I think that you know, we, one wouldn't have seen the, the peace that we have today in Liberia. Um, and I think that this was a recognition of those, those multiple efforts that women um, uh, engaged in. Um, it's also a recognition of women's leadership in Africa. Um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was the first female president in, elected president in Africa. Uh, and so it's a recognition of these, these changing um, d trends that we, we now see in Africa today. So, um, so uh, yes, it has a tremendous amount of, of significance. We um, um, uh, proudly, um, and those of us uh, dealing with African affairs and uh, especially African politics, um, we proudly uh, received the statistic that um, Rwanda has the um, highest uh, representatives of women in their legislature. Is that still a, um, a fact that uh, it is the Rwandan parliament mm -hmm. that um, has the highest? Um, and so what explains, you know, um, this um, high visibility, this increase in visibility um, of women in African politics? Mm -hmm. um, uh, yes, it's correct. Rwanda has 56% uh, of the legislative seats in Rwanda um, are held by women. That's the highest rate in the world. Um, they have, they're the first country that made it pa over the 50% mark. Um, and there are many other countries with high le levels of representation in Africa, um, Burundi, uh, Angola, um, Mozambique, uh, Tanzania, Uganda. Um, these, all, these countries all have very, very high rates as well. Um, so there are a number of factors that I, th I would attribute to this um, change. One of them is what I spoke about yesterday in my talk, and that is that um, you'll see if you find most of these trends in countries where, that have come out of conflict in Africa. Um, and especially countries that have come out of conflict uh, in recent years since the mid-1990s. Uh, and so that's one factor, but also the use of quotas. Many of these countries have electoral quotas that are, have been introduced um, that give uh, women a, um, an edge in terms of um, their chance of being elected. Um, it's, an, it's an affirmative action measure that's been taken. Um, there are also uh, there's also been pressure from women's movements uh, within many of these countries for these kinds of changes. Um, and they also very much coincide with changing international norms. So for example, the 1995 UN Conference on Women in Beijing, uh, there was a platform of action that was passed that adopted resolutions that um, recommended the governments and, and uh, all non-governmental organizations, um, all institutions uh, give women leadership roles and, and find a space for them in some way. Uh, and so um, as a result of these kinds of international pressures, domestic pressures from women's movements within countries, as well as the political, the changing political will by leaders themselves to address this issue of women's um, representation. And we're now finding uh, that um, we're finding these kinds of results like we see in Rwanda. Fantastic. Well, just as a follow-up question, um, you know, I just want to um, uh, bring up some of the uh, scholarship on um, uh, African feminism uh, from some of my colleagues, uh, people like um, Ifi Amadume, um, Ronke Oyewumi, 
um, Misere Mugo, who um, you know have different explanations for um, the basis of uh, female power in uh, Africa. Uh, they would claim that. Um, um, female power has uh, historically always been present uh, in Africa and um, that there is no surprise where now that women have been given the political opportunity mm -hmm. openings to um, take that place. Mm -hmm. um, but could you uh, speak to some of the um, internal dimensions of um, mm -hmm female political power, especially in the context of some of the discussions that we had last night. Um, I think some said perhaps, well, you know, if we, um, uh, you know, see this from the point of view, um, not solely, but even, you know, squarely from post-conflict societies, do we really see the same kind of phenomena happening in Afghanistan or in, you know, Libya, um, for example, where just recently I think we were told that um, the new leader will uh, implement Sharia and he would implement Sharia um, to help women who have been raped and so he would help to implement polygamy uh, even though he backtracked you know that was the mantra so you know perhaps talk a little bit about if you can uh, the historical and cultural basis of mm -hmm. uh, female power in Africa sure excellent question um, I think that uh, here one really does have to go back and look at what happened what was the status of women in pre-colonial uh, Africa? And there you do find the, the, the phenomena that you were describing there. Women had been queen mothers. They had been queens in Ethiopia, a long line of queens in Ethiopia. They were, had, they were chiefs in countries like, like Lesotho. Um, they, women had been uh, clan leaders in many um, societies which, which didn't have, um, which had clan elders as running the communities. Uh, so there's a long history of this of women's leadership, um, but uh, during the colonial period and then the post-colonial period, um, women's leadership was really um, pushed aside, and uh, colonial leader colonial powers came in with their own ideas of what women's women's leadership should be. And the Brit British, for example, came out of the Victorian tradition and and um, uh, didn't didn't see that the women should have a role in local government, for example. Uh, and so, with that kind of mindset, they um, um, they imposed a, a political system that really only focused on male power, uh, and this continued in the post-independence period for the most part. Um, I should point out that during the independence struggles, there were women who were key leaders. Uh, I can mention you know, Bibi Titi in Tanzania, yeah. for example, was. At the time, she was considered really an equal of president of Julius Nyerere, who was the, the first president of Tanzania. And she was equally well known and went around um, campaigning with him. Um, she got then sidelined after uh, independence. Yeah. But, but um, there are many examples of, the, of women's role in, um, in these in, uh, independence movements. They, they fought in the, the independence movements in Mozambique, uh, in Angola, in Guinea-Bissau, against the Portuguese. Um, and, uh, Anyway, one can one can point to many such examples, but this then this they were then sidelined for the most part. Yeah. Um, they were given some roles in women's organizations, women's unions, mass associations, that were tied to the ruling party during the the um, post-independence period. But it really wasn't until the early 1990s when you began to see the kind of changes that I'm talking about, yeah. uh, where you began to see the emergence of independent women's movements that were not tied to the state or tied to the ruling parties. And that's where you begin to see these kinds of numbers changing after the mid-90s in terms of women's representation in, in parliament. Um, and it wasn't just parliament um, or the legislature. Uh, women, were, women started now running after the year 2000. You began to see larger numbers of women running for the presidency mm. in many, many African countries. 
Um, you saw more women prime ministers, more, more women vice presidents, more women uh, holding key central positions in the cabinets. Um, in the past, they had been relegated to uh, minister of uh, community development or minister of youth and sports and minister of, of women. Yeah. Now they were being put into key ministerial positions. Uh, so that was a big change. Sure. Um, from from the past, so but but that was something that's something new. Um, so, but it has its its roots and it has its origins. I think um, very far back. Absolutely, great. And just to pick up on this very important point, that there are so many more African women in cabinet positions and in Parliament throughout the continent. Um, the, are partly responsible, of course, for passing more female-friendly policies and laws. Um, do these trends uh, mean that uh, the lives of the majority of African people are going to improve? Uh, what is it uh, that African women bring to uh, institutional politics uh, that uh, might bode well for the future? Uh, yeah, I mean, so far what we've been seeing are changes in legislation in many of these countries where you where you see uh, women representatives. So you do see more push around um, land issues, more push around inheritance issues, more push around um, uh, questions of violence against women. And you're, we're seeing increasing numbers of um, countries passing legislation around these, these kinds of questions. And it, I think, is directly tied to the women who are um, in parliament. On the other hand, the, the big... The real question is, well, does that, like you said, translate into actual, the actual lives of, day -to, of women in the day-to-day -day context? And I think that partly it's a little bit too early to answer that because in many countries we've just begun to see women coming into parliament and making these kinds of, uh, taking this kind of initiative. So it's, it's a bit early, but if you look at other countries where this has happened earlier in Latin America and Europe, um, certainly there's a correlation there. It's a very strong correlation between um, female representation and the adoption of policy. Um, uh, so, so partly it's, it's a question of it, it being a very recent, recent phenomenon. Um, the other issue, that, that what one also could, could say is that um, where there has been more experience, like in the Ugandan case, where there's now 20 years of, of this experience of women, large numbers of women in power, we have seen, for example, um, around the land issue, more women are taking their cases to the magistrates' courts because of the land policies that have been adopted. So there is, where, where there's research that's been done on this, there, there is evidence to show that they are, um, it is translating to a certain extent at the local level. Right. Um, and sometimes it's translating in ways that, that are not maybe directly tied to the legislation, but um, for example, one of the things that I one hears all the time in Uganda is uh, that um, now that women can be, they had a woman vice president for 10 years, and mm -hmm. because of that, there's a sense that, well, if a woman can be vice president, she can run a business, she can drive a car, she can become a race car driver, she can run a university. Uh, the, the sky is the limit, in other words. And so in a way, what it did is it opened up new possibilities and new ways that women could envision what they could do and what was possible and what they had the capability to do. And I think that, that psychologically, it, the impact was really quite um, enormous, even though, again, you know, change is slow. Institutional change is not something that, you know, it takes time to change cultures and, and, and minds, um, but um, on, the, on the other hand, you do see these kind of new, new re-envisioning of, of the possible. Yeah. Let, me, let me build on um, you know, that um, last thought, which is um, the, the, this idea of change and um, push you perhaps to think about um, um, the relationship between um, 
democracy and gender representation. Now, I think in your talk last night and in your um, book, African Women's Movements, you do ask the question, you pose the question, does democratization really matter in this correlation? Mm -hmm. And I think you conclude um, that it doesn't much because um, you've seen that the transitions to democracies across Africa have not always um, um, presented the kind of um, increase in visibility and representation of women that you see in post-conflict societies. But I do want you to think about um, whether or not really what's happening here is the quotas. Um, and I see that as a, a style of democracy. Um, it, it is a kind of proportional representation, even though it's not the official proportional system, but it is a style where you have said, I do want to um, reserve um, you know, spaces for either you know, some kind of identity, if it's ethnic minorities, or if it's, in this case, you know, gender. Um, and, and these countries that have um, you know, pushed this style of democracy, where they have pushed the question, aren't they the ones that are you know, succeeding in um, increasing the visibility of women? Um, and shouldn't we use extra extrapolate from that um, the countries that are going through transitions to democracy but are not using this policy? We should be advocating that this policy helps. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the relationship between democracy and women's representation is a complex one. I think that globally, if you look at the overall global patterns, there is a, a correlation there. Mm -hmm. If you look within Africa and look at a certain point in time, you'll see, for example, if you looked right now, you would not find necessarily a correlation. And that's partly because you have many authoritarian countries like Rwanda, like Uganda, that are uh, have implemented quotas for women. And so, and they, in fact, have had quite high rates of representation for women um, as a result of the use of quotas. So it, there's not a nice, clean relationship in, in the African context. But if you look over time, the, the countries that have had a, a, a civil, some modicum of civil liberties mm -hmm. have over time then, um, you, see a, you see a pattern emerging that, mm -hmm. that um, further down the road then they tend to have higher rates of representation. So in terms of looking forward or into the future, it, it, looks, um, it looks like these countries that have some, that are, have in, have some level of, of civil liberties, um, it, it does have positive effects for okay. women's, um, women's representation further down the road. Great. Mm -hmm. Your new work, recently published by Lynn Reiner on Uganda, is built around this concept of the hybrid regime. Mm -hmm. As a historian, I'm always very interested in grappling with uh, ideas that other specialists in, in different disciplines uh, are coming up with and, and uh, anchoring their work around. You portray Uganda as being caught in this contradiction that it's both a, a semi-authoritarian regime but also has the trappings of a democratic state. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about this, this hybrid regime and these contradictions in Uganda? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I really think that Uganda is very much, um, I, it's, it's neither a democratic regime nor is it an authoritarian, completely authoritarian one. I mean, what we see today is not the uh, Uganda of Idi Amin, for example. And so there is a, there is a distinction to be made, but it, it is also not a democracy. Um, and it's, so it's somewhere in between. And so I think of this, uh, this notion of hybridity as falling on a continuum between democracy, which is never full. It's not even full in the UN United States. Um, it's, an, it's always a, a, a work in progress. Um, and then at the other end of the continuum are full-blown authoritarian regimes um, that are quite autocratic and, and leave very little room for um, uh, 
for um, civil uh, liberties and political rights. So Uganda falls in the middle of this, and I think that some hybrid regimes tend to lean more towards the democratic end, and the others, like Uganda, tend to lean more towards the, or I call them semi-authoritarian regimes. They lean more towards the authoritarian end. Um, and it's, it's a complicated mix uh, and a balancing act between, um, between authoritarian tendencies and, and uh, democratic tendencies. They don't necessarily, I mean, they will adopt some, uh, civil liberties and political rights, but up to a point, and only in, insofar as they're pushed by society, by, uh, by the courts, by the legislature, by civil society actors, um, or pushed by donor, external donors. Um, and they will really don't go very much beyond what they can get away with. Mm -hmm. um, they're not interested in opening up fully. Um, they do the minimum. They're usually dominated by a, a, a president um, who gets at least over 60% or 70% of the vote. They get, um, the, there's a ruling party which operates like a, almost like a de facto single party. Um, you'll find very often enormous amounts of fraud in the elections. Um, uh, and this is more than just your garden variety uh, fraud. I mean, this is major fraud that we're talking about. Um, and, but, but the difference between a regime like an, a, a full-blown authoritarian regime and one like Museveni's Uganda is that within Uganda you really do have pressures that are constantly contesting this dominance by the, by the executive. And so the, the courts are constantly challenging them. The legislature is, is to a lesser degree, but is also challenged, challenging them. Um, civil society actors, human rights groups, women's organizations, um, uh, peace activists are constantly challenging them, and many times they win. I mean, many—it's not always, but many times they do win, and they they can push back against some of the most repressive tendencies. And so there's this constant back and forth tug of war that keeps going on in in, in this hybrid um, context between democracy and authoritarianism. It gets played out on the political stage um, on a daily basis, and. Um, and so Uganda is in this kind of a catch-22 because um, the government has used both violence and patronage, um, violence to repress and patronage as, as a carrot to, um, to dominate. But because they've used violence, they have enemies. <laughs> because they've used patronage, they've also crossed the boundaries of what's legal. And so um, for, for someone like Museveni, um, there's no way out of power. He has to stay in power. And to stay in power, he has to continue using violence and patronage. There's no out. For him, the only alternative, once he goes, I, I, I believe, and this is my opinion, is um, exile, um, as was the case with Idi Amin. I mean, exile, it could be a trip to the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Um, it's, it could be mean prosecution within the country. It could mean um, death. It could mean imprisonment. I mean, there's no easy out here for him. And so he has to stay in power. He, he, he can't leave <laughs> um, because the alternative really is, is not a pretty one. Um, uh, you know, I'm sitting here s seeing how will I formulate this question without being too pedantic and professorial, <laughs> as uh, Peter warned us uh, earlier on. I you think you've given a wonderful um, response to the question that I did have anyway, but uh, yes, maybe want to just have the discussion anyway. Um, because, um, you know, I'm really um, um, intrigued by um, your book on Sveni's Uganda and the paradoxes of power, especially uh, the way you um, uh, assign his um, regime as a hybrid regime. Uh, I see that as similar to um, 
Andrea Shedler's, uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, he wrote the book on electoral authoritarian regimes. Um, I wrote a book um, also on comparative democracy in Africa, and um, I took issue with um, the conceptualization of you know, the, the so-called um, um, democracies in Africa are really authoritarian regimes. And I know that's not what you're saying, actually. I think um, very differently, you are, are capturing more of the paradoxes. Um, but I do want to um, put out there that the reason why I um, used um, the, um, I think it was the Argentinian um, democracies uh, specialist, um, Guillermo O'Donnell's concept of delegative democracies is because I was trying to um, contextualize why um, regimes like Museveni's regime um, acts that way and what are the possibilities of you know um, nurturing still a democracy from that in one context um, I'm, I'm, my feeling is that Museveni's regime is also a post-conflict regime and so order and um, stability um, is an important you know political dimension of these regimes and I think um, it's a legitimate question, right? Um, and so, um, yes, we've agreed that he is no Idi Amin, um, but, you know, um, you know, the violence coming from the state is to put down um, social violence, right? You know, we would agree that he needs to put down the LRA, right? You know, I mean, there needs to be a, a modicum of, you know, um, executive control. Do we call it authoritarianism? Um, and then the, on the other side, we're also agreeing that, um, on the gender question, this is a, a regime that has, you know, um, increased the visibility of women in this country. Um, I would suggest that that is a, you know, democratic movement, right? You know, by equalizing identities. And so, um, I, I don't know what the question is, um, but um, perhaps, you know, just some commentary on that. Thank you. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I agree with you that there are these different tendencies within within. Uh, the regime that are, you know, they're this grappling with the gender mm -hmm. issues. I think is uh, an example of the fact that you know they there are efforts to to be inclusive um, and in in different ways, um, and that there are these different two two different tendencies that that one sees within within the regime. Um, and it, but I do think it is on a continuum, and, it, and it, it, many of these countries that are hybrid regimes kind of slide back and forth, and, and they may lean at one point more towards democracy, other times more towards um, authoritarianism. But there, there is this continuum, and I don't preclude that it it might democratize further. I mean, it, it could. Um, it also could very easily slip the other way, and that that's seems true. to be where it's heading at the moment. Um, so it's, it, you know, it, a lot of these things do, do change, but I think that what we've, we've had now 20 some years of um, democratization, and we have this kind of set of core countries sure. that haven't really moved either way. They've, sure. they've kind of got stuck in this, yeah. in this hybrid sure. <laughs> existence, and the question is why, and why aren't they democratizing more? Sure. I do think also that the big story, a lot of people who, when, when um, we began to see these democratization wins in Africa in the early 1990s. Many people focused on the fact that, well, you know, we had some countries like Ghana that democratized, and and uh, a, there was, but then there was the big disappointment, like, well, why didn't the rest of them democratize, and why why didn't we see more change? Uh, and I think that that's a good question. But on the other hand, I think the big story was really at the other end of the spectrum that mm. we had a large number of countries that really did move out of that 
the authoritarian box and, sure. and, and at least began to open up and sure. things began to change and there mm -hmm. was at least now a free press That's and right. there was a civil society that was active and there was uh, the political parties could operate um, even if they were if they they experienced constraints. So to me, that was the that was really the big the big shift that occurred, um, and not so much um, you know the question of why didn't they all become democracies. Um, if you look at the overall patterns of democratization globally, every country that's democratized always had this step in between, and they all had some experience with democracy, uh, even if it was limited, and that no country has ever just overnight gone from one sure. to the other, that there has to be, there ha they have to have some experience in between before mm -hmm. they really, you know, completely yeah. democratize. Well, yeah. Yeah. Thanks. It's extremely challenging to <laughs> generalize about the massive African continent when dealing with all these Absolutely. local specificities. You know, it's, it's, it's fabulous to hear all these uh, different ideas. Uh, perhaps this is a good time to maybe shift to our last question, which is what really all the time we have today. Um, that has to do with the African Studies Association, the premier academic uh, organization uh, in North America and uh, dealing with, with African affairs. You are the president-elect of the ASA, which is going to hold its uh, annual meeting in just a, a few weeks in Washington, D.C. Um, what is uh, your vision for the ASA as you assume this uh, leadership position? And uh, are there some important topics uh, and issues on the agenda that uh, you're going to be putting forward? Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest challenges, not just for African Studies Association, but really for all, all people working in international education in the U.S. right now, um, are, the, are these bills before Congress that have to do with um, the fate of the area studies programs, the Title VI programs, and, uh, and how they'll be funded. Um, also for individual scholarship um, for research in Africa and other parts of the world. Um, you know, these are all very much hanging in the balance, and major, major, drastic, dramatic cuts have been proposed, and uh, this will just devastate international education and uh, and the study of Africa. Um, well, they've as, been along put into practice it. already. Forty-six percent cuts have, to it, Title VI. Absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely, and mm -hmm. so, um, so it, it is devastating us. But it will, if the, if the proposed uh, cuts that remain, then we're really going to be in, yeah. in bad shape. And so I think this is really the big challenge for the, our association and all other associations that are in a similar position, is how to address this, this um, and how to really, you know, we should be increasing, not, not, not cutting back. This is the time we need to know more about the world, not less about Absolutely. it. Um, there's no way United States can be a, a real player on the international stage if we, if we don't know what's going on in the world. And we need more ties, more contact, more travel, more exchanges, not less. And so I just, and. The, the, in the training of students, I mean, this is this is going to affect the number of PhDs that we have that work in these areas and their the quality of their knowledge of Africa and other parts of the world. And if they can't go and learn firsthand, um, I just hesitate to think what we're going to be teaching our students in classrooms. So to me, this is the big challenge that we face right now, um, and we're going to have to start thinking quickly and creatively about how to address it. Well, I just want to follow up with. Uh, um, First, a congratulations on your recent election Thank as you. the uh, president of the um, ASA. Um, but um, you know, I, I, you know, you so eloquently, I you know, think um, you know, research, publish, uh, teach on um, representation of African women in uh, African politics. And so, just wondering if you could close with um, because uh, you know, I see you as a role model. Um, you know, as a woman 
in, um, well, power, yes, <laughs> uh, right here in the United States. And here is, you know, a, you know, a colleague, um, you know, senior to me, I think, a little senior to me, <laughs> who has um, um, attained this position. So I know that there are, um, you know, young graduate students or, you know, just women out there listening, you know, who uh, would like you to perhaps comment on, you know, the women in power, um, you know, complexes, paradoxes, uh, right here in the African Studies Academy. Um, mm -hmm. uh, speak to that a little bit before you leave mm -hmm. us, please. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think a lot of my inspiration actually comes from the <laughs> kinds of things that I research myself. And mm. I think that one area where I think American women have a lot to learn in the academy, but also beyond, is by looking at the experiences of African women. I mean, why do they, why does Rwanda have so many women in the legislature, 56%? Why do, why does Liberia have a, a president? Um, why, do, why does the United States only have 17% of the congressional seats, um, both in, in the Senate and um, the House um, held by women? Why do we have such low representation in state legislatures? I mean, we need to ask some hard questions. and I don't think we've even begun to ask them yet. Mm. Um, I think we've just, we're, we're ignoring it and we're not realizing that what's happening in Africa actually represents a trend that we're seeing in many, many parts of the world now, even in the Middle East. Uh, in a, in, if the, the rates of change, even in, of representation of women in the Middle East continue the way that they're, they are going right now, they will be ahead of us in a few years. So um, watch out. <laughs> we're going to be you know, stuck way behind and, not, and we don't even know it. Oh, thank you. Well, on that uh, uplifting <laughs> note of sorts, uh, thank you, Professor Tripp, for joining us on Africa Past and Present. Thank yes. you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, yes. <laughs>